In the reading corner today, my guest is former teacher Jonathan Tullock, and we're going to be talking about his children's novel, Cuckoo Summer. It's a story set uh, during the Second World War in the Lake District, and it is evocative of time and place as two children, Tommy and Sally, discover a German airman who has parachuted out of a plane that has crashed. Uh, It's an exciting page turner, uh, but there's so much more to this story and I can't wait to delve in and explore with Jonathan. So first of all, a big welcome to you, Jonathan, your first visit into the Reading Corner. It is, yes. Hello. Thank you very much. (laughs) And you're joining me from North Yorkshire today. I am, yeah. I've said a little bit about uh, the novel, but maybe haven't captured what's most important to you. So I wonder whether you could give us an introduction in your words. Well, this is a, a story which is based on my own family stories that I was told um, when I was young from my nanny, Annie, and Auntie Polly and Auntie Dolly, who spent the war years on a small holding in Westmoreland in the Lake District. And um, they used to always tell me about what life was like there, the, the working with the horse, the, the, the farm work, the evacuees, and also the idea that a German airman somehow was always going to pop up. And there was always a story about a German lurking somewhere. So I got all these different stories when I was growing up. So I just had to turn them into a book. Obviously, the characters are invented. Tommy, who was a boy, was perhaps slightly like me when I was hearing these stories. And Sally, the evacuee girl from Tyneside, who, who comes right into the middle of the adventure. And she's uh, got an enigmatic background and there are secrets there that, well, not so much secrets, but there are parts of her background that unfold as the story uh, develops. Uh, I wanted to get us started, whether we could hear a bit from the beginning. Yes, it's the very beginning and uh, it goes like this. It was Sally who found him. She came sprinting back down through the trees to tell me. Tommy! Tommy! she cried. You'll never guess what. What? I asked. He's in the old hook, she said breathlessly. Who, who is? It's just hanging there. Legs dangling doom. Sally was an evacuee from Tyneside. She didn't speak like us, especially when she was excited. Tommy, man! His parachute are tangled up in the branches. Parachute? That's what I'm telling you. It's a German airman. He must have jumped out when the plane went our last night. Last night, a German plane had flown low over Woundale, the first one we'd heard since the war began. By the roaring din, I'd guessed it was a Heinkel bomber. I started running towards the town. Where are you going, Tommy man? Sally cried. To tell someone, I said. We've got to report him. Divent, she said. Divent report him. Come and see him first. Uh, That's a really cracking opening and gets us straight into the story. And they are going to find this uh, German airman and they're going to keep it secret. Uh, And that's partly what propels this story forward is keeping it secret from the adults. When I was reading it, it did put me in mind of a couple of other stories that I've read. Robert Westall's Machine Gunners, this is not the same story. It's very different. 
but because it's also got that connection with Tyneside. But the other one that came to mind was Whistle Down the Wind, which was made into a film with Hayley Mills. And that also has a group of children taking care of an adult in distress in a rural background. I wondered if you'd ever seen that film or read that book. I've never read The Machine Gunners, and I feel bad because uh, I had a copy on my shelf for two decades. Whistle Down the Wind, yes. It's uh, one of those dreamlike, lyrical and yet like quite hard brassed films. So I, I, I remember seeing that when, not when I was young, but uh, probably in my teenage years. And the black and white, I did like that film. And I think it's quite interesting because uh, Sally is the one who seems particularly invested in this airman. Even when Tommy wants to tell the adults, she makes him swear not to tell anybody. And there's always a sense in which the adults are not going to let you down, but they're not exactly who you think you're saving. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she has uh, quite a, a, well, a tragic backstory, really. That's based a little bit on what I used to be told about evacuees, because mainly the ones that came to Westmoreland were from Tyneside, and they would say things like, um, um, little Burns had never used a knife and fork, or one of them, they had never even slept in a bed, you know, so there was all these stories. I don't think the cruelty was like all the way through, you know, but some of them did have a bit of a hard time. Mm. So Sally, you know, it, it's horrible to think of the situation that was she in. And I think she, when she comes to Wounddale, bearing the wounds of her own past, I think um, there's a healing there for her. And it's sort of like through the, the, uh, the airman a little bit. Mm. I obviously heard, as you were saying that, the emphasis on Wounddale. And there are other names in this that struck me as being particularly resonant for the characters that they were given to. The farmer that takes Sally in is called Mr. Scarcross. And he's a very, well, worse than grumpy. He has a cruel streak in him. But early on, as an adult reader, uh, you've signposted for me that he is a survivor of the First World War. Yeah, I think when I'm, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and I, the Second World War still cast a big shadow. Um, I think we were still probably quite jingoistically there. Like we used to play Japs and Commandos or whatever, you know, and go out and play in the street. And we didn't really think about the, uh, the negative aspects of trauma, basically. And so, yeah, this, this man is horrible, but uh, he was on the Battle of Somme, mm -hmm. you know, so... Uh, often you're not going to come out of that kind of situation enhanced. Mm. So he was scarred by that. Mm. The names are funny because I tried to get um, names that I remember, like the Grisdales, they're the Grisdales, and that's my mother's maiden name. Um, so that, And that's a really good Lakeland name, which uh, all names have got a meaning. And this one I, I loved to, to find out meant, I mean, we know what Dale is. It's a valley. And, and Gris, it was be Grisdal, sort of like the original Norwegian. At Valley of the Little Pigs. So that right. the family name would be where in the Lake District, the sort of like the pigs were kept. So uh, I know some of the other names in the book are sort of Lake District. And with Scarcross, yeah, Scargill would have been an obvious one. But I didn't want to sort of like, heap any more contempt on that historical figure than I would have to, you know. Mm -hmm. So I chose Scarcross and yeah, the womb that comes to Wombdale and all that kind of stuff. Mm 
There are other fallible adults in this story, uh, one of whom is a, a teacher who I think is ironically called Miss Gently. Of course, you were a teacher yourself. That's a really interesting one because, you know, teachers can can compound the cruelty that uh, is there and exists between children sometimes. Yeah. So one of the teachers is is bad and one's good. I, obviously, as an ex-member of the of the profession, I didn't want to sort of, you know, give it a bad press. But for the nice teacher is really nice. And the bad teacher, like, well, is just a bully. So, yeah, um, in that kind of situation where teachers had a lot of authority, they can just back up uh, prejudice and, you know, like bullying, I suppose you would call it. Mm. My nanny, uh, my grandma, her sister was was a teacher. So there was, I got stories about the schools as well. You know what it was like. So it's all sort of like pushed in there. Mm. Let's talk about something that I'm sure is very close to you because you um, are a writer of nature. You write nature columns. And I just want to quote from your author's note that you wrote to go with this, that the glorious sights and sounds of British nature have flown and grown their way into these pages. Not just the cuckoo that called over the wartime tarn, but all the different species of trees, birds and flowers that I can remember being common in my own childhood. I think we need to meet nature in our books so we know what the British countryside should really sound, smell and look like. And that's exactly uh, what you've given us in this book. Thank you. Because professionally now for like a long time, I've been writing in the Times and the tablet and other things about nature. My childhood I mean we know that nature has like fallen off in a big way probably because I'm like a Cumbrian it probably fallen off less there than it did in other places although you know like on the edge of cities and, and towns it was always a lot of nature you know in kind of like waste ground and stuff like that I can remember um we went out playing from you know I mean it sounds like a stereotype I mean was it the last childhood we went out in the morning and came back at night you know and there was always something there and always nature and then I remember when I visited this place in Westmoreland, Woondale, there was like a hayfield which was kept you know couldn't be it was like a, a religious relic you can't touch it you know until it's mown because you'll ruin it and I remember I did wade through it as the characters in the book do you know guiltily the flowers that grew there and the, the butterflies and there was a night jar and all that stuff. But I don't want to overburden young readers with too much about all of this. But I just thought I want them to know, you know, what's possible. Yeah. Can I also ask you about the cuckoo, which is so evocative and, and it punctuates the, this story. Um, you know, the cuckoo calling from the bulrushes, calling from the willows, calling from the hayfield. What is it that's so evocative about the cuckoo? That's a good question. I, I haven't thought about these things. Even when I was writing it, I, I haven't thought about this. But I can remember the visits to this place, right? There would be the rattle of the, the cattle gates as our Allegro, Austin Allegro, went over it. There'd be a, a hoofbeat of heifers as the cows came to meet us at the wall. Then as soon as like we'd got onto the farm, you'd hear the cuckoo. And it just used to call and, and 
I was like, had this, I was almost famous amongst the sort of the relatives for, for wanting to find it and never being able to. So I would run down to the tarn looking for it in the willows. Then I would go through the bulrushes. Then I would run up the rowans on the foul side. I would like be searching for it all the time. But the cuckoos don't really show themselves, you know, but they call all the time. So you don't need to see them really because the soundtrack is it's incredible, especially in a dale where the echo. So they're just echo and it's and it was just everywhere. So I thought, you know, I've got to have this bird. And also obviously. Uh, the cuckoo symbolism of you know coming into laying an egg in a nest so like characters come from the outside of this nest-like valley and um, that's what happens so the cuckoo mm. is like an image for that it also works well in terms of bookending the story because there is that rhyme about the cuckoo and how its song changes uh, mm. we, you don't hear it the whole year round it's like with swallows as well. That brings, it's kind of like a shared culture for us all, you know, where the older ones will say, oh, look, it's not for this, it'll come, and, you know, and we get excited. Mm. It seemed to me that there are other things that struck me that are losses as well. There's an episode where they're listening to Singing Together on the radio. I remember listening to Singing Together. And there were the songs, Bobby Shafto, Cockles and Mussels, mm. Riding on a Donkey. Uh, so that obviously kept going for quite a number of years. Yeah, so I was yeah. listening to it in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that radiogram that's in the book, I, that was from my school as well. The teachers used to wheel it out. And um, that's my ideal kind of lesson in the book. You know, if you're a teacher, that I just think that's just a great way for, for people to learn, you know, the singing and... Um, then there'll be chat probably about, well, what silver buckles on the knee? What's all that about? You know, and, the, and before people had um, all the nightmare of Ofsted and everything, they'd mm. just be able to like listen to something and then chat about it in, a, in a, an open way. And I do feel some of those songs are probably being forgotten. But the great thing, of course, now is that we have many different folk cultures to draw on that have become part of our culture. Uh, but I just hope that those traditional folk songs uh, are, are remembered too. Yeah, well, there's a biodiversity in human culture as well as nature, dialects, um, songs, like regional things. So, yeah, I mean, we change as a culture and that's great. You know, I, you know I've got no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Embrace new things. And even when things fall back, like it, an oak tree can, can you know, live for 500 years and then die for 500 years. And the echoes of what it was continue, you know, mm. so uh, the old culture still cast a sort of a benign shadow over, over things. Mm, really interesting. Uh, you mentioned dialect there. So I'm going to come to dialect next because there's clearly a love of, a love of language and Sally gives you an opportunity to bring in uh, well, the northeast. What I was really interested in <laughs> is because there must surely be a, as I know there is, there's a dialect in Westmoreland as well. And yet, when you write Tommy, you don't write that in broad. So I was interested in in those choices. I, well, it's like a linguistic thing. Eh? If you did a PhD on it, I was brought up like cracking on in, in Carlisle talk. Yeah, so I'd be like gone in yam for going home. And all of that, and that is actually closer to Geordie in the sort of the word, the words. Like, I use a gadget, yeah, 
he's a man. See that child that I was there, see the boy over there. It's sort of like sim more similar in that way to Newcastle. So I wasn't because I didn't speak the Westmoreland stuff, I wasn't really that confident of putting it in. Um, whereas I lived in Newcastle for a long time. So I always work it out this way. Like I can do Sunderland because my dad's my dad was a Matlam, right? So I've heard him all me like. Then you just got up north, like, and it's Newcastle. I lived there for three years, so it's quite easy. So for me, I would have done Tommy, but I wanted it to be, as a writer, I get a little bit of pressure I have in the past about not using dialect and accents, right? So I want it to be understood. I want the music to be there, but I want readers not to be taxed by it. So it's always a fine balance. That's really interesting, because I think from a reader's point of view, it works, and especially because of what you were saying about the cuckoo and outsiders, because it marks Sally out as coming from the outside. But I do think had you done that with both of the children, it would probably have been heavy work for a reader. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you say, I wanted the, the ones from within the sort of Wombdale, they all understand each other. And I put a few things in, like Ben occasionally and stuff like that. But yeah. It's Sally who's sort of like the outsider who comes in with the sort of like this brash uh, Geordie stuff. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could have another reading from the book. Okay, right. Um, I'll do the bit with, with the baddie in because, you know, you've always got to have a baddie. I like, uh, <laughs> as we were talking about, it's called Scarcross. And he he is the man who has Sally as, a, as an evacuee. So, and I was talking about, how evacuees were chosen and often they would be marched into a village hall and someone would say oh i don't want her i want a boy to do a bit of hard work you know and someone would either choose you know it wasn't all written down who was having who often it was a bit of a like a free-for-all right so this is tommy the farm lad and um, sally his friend the evacuee they're in sally's living accommodation basically above the the bayer above the where the horse lives and the cow lives and they're just talking to each other about what they should do about the airmen that they found. You know, it's a big thing. Tommy's dad is like missing at Dunkirk. He's like an airman himself. So what Tommy really wants to hand him in and Sally, you know, they're discussing about it. And this is when Scarcross comes in. Suddenly the door was kicked open and Scarcross strode into the buyer below. I've a boat to pick with you, you jolly well, he called up. First you took me cart, then you stole me whiskey, and I told you not to let that horse out again. It's been feeding its head off in the hay field. You shouldn't feed that horse. Come down here, Missy Weasel, before I have to climb up there and get you. Missy Weasel's not here, Sally called back. Gunning up for us somewhere else. You think this is a joke? Sparkos snarled. I, she grinned. I'm proper laughing me heat off. Well, let's see if you laugh at this. An object flew through the darkness and shook the edge of the hayloft door. Sally pulled me out of the way just in time. It was a hammer. Just wait until I get hot of you, Scarcross threatened. He began climbing the ladder. To my amazement, I heard Sally giggle. Scarcross's head appeared in the opening. Sally's giggle became a burst of laughter. <laughs> By God, I'm going to bring you in the line, you pilfering little time side rat, Scarcross growled. 
But before he could climb in, Scarcross found himself confronted by a blade. Climb back, Doom, Sally said quietly, holding a large knife. Or get walked, Doom. It's up to you. Scarcross stared at the blade. In the poor light, he couldn't see what I could, the eagle and swastika. It was the German airman's dagger. Quick as the wing of a swallow, the dagger cut the air just inches from Scarcross's nose. Swearing loudly, he retreated and lumbered back outside. Told you I could handle scary cross, Sally cried in triumph. I'll tell you what, it doesn't get much more exciting than that. <laughs> well, and you you seem to really enjoy reading aloud. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I'm always thinking I'm going to be reading it out at some point. So I like to put in like lots of exciting bits, you know. Also, I don't know, for about four years, I ran a, like a reading group with uh, asylum seekers and refugees. And we used to do um, fables, Aesop's fables and fairy tales and, and poetry. Include, we did simplified words with. I would read them and we would talk about it. And I've always, since then, I've sort of like been quite attuned to the whole process of, of sharing a story by reading it out loud. So even some of those people could speak very little English, but they could also, they could get the tone of voice. And I think the written word has a tone of voice as well that, that communicates itself to people. So yeah, I, I do like to have sort of like exciting bits to read as well. There's nothing worse than listening to an author like drone on, you know, when it's sort of, um, it's not very exciting. Uh, interesting what you say there, that the words have a meaning but language carries meaning in its other elements too, which are rhythm and pace and rhyme and all of those poetic things, even in prose, carry a meaning. And, and I think people respond to that when you read aloud. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Matt, this is the teacher's role again. We, I mean, can you remember being at school and having a teacher reading a book? I mean, it was fantastic just used to long for it for the sound of a voice and also if you think about language is a very intimate part of the human being and we've been telling speaking stories for a long time and really books and printing stuff is like pinioning the butterfly you're sort of locking it down on the page like dead really so um i always remember that language is a living thing so when i'm writing it down i hope that there's enough room within the words for it to sort of find its wings again mm. so something like for me to hear the word tarn even i'd love being able to put that in the time because where i grew up which is north cumbria a tarn was every pond like in westmoreland they, were, they had their own big tarns right but like uh, north cumbria like every little pond would be a tarn you know now i found out tarn was like a, a viking word basically a patch of water so it was like this thing that had been left over from like a thousand years ago so I, every time I use the word tarn I just hear like a, a stone dropped in a, a really old well you know and all the echoings but loads of words like meadow or cuckoo they're just so full of like uh, their own music. Uh, I think it's interesting that quite a lot of the words that you've talked about in the in the dialect have Viking origins and I do remember Melvin Bragg I think he grew up in Cumbria didn't he? And I remember him saying that you could go into the pub and listen to people talking 
and it would not be unrecognizable to somebody from Iceland. Yeah, it's like the Ganjiam and, and there's, there's, there's lots of stuff. I think because the Vikings came and there was two types, the Danes on the east side, but coming from Cum the ones in Cumbria were like Norwegian ones. So they could understand each other, but they left a distinctive thing. And yeah, Melvin does say that. And in the Second World War, regiments uh, from Cumbria used to mingle with the Norwegian ones because they were, you know, there, there were things in common that they could understand. One one final question um, that I don't think we've covered, and that is, I'm interested to know why having all these stories and these sort of memoirs passed down, uh, why why it was that you chose to write this as a children's book? I think maybe it's because I heard the stories like when I was young, so I received these stories because like they moved away from there like in the 1970s, so that place had gone, and then. Just as I was growing up, it was I, so the cooker was silent because they, they didn't live there anymore. But I still heard it in the stories they were telling me because they would always mention it somehow, like that bloody cuckoo, you know. And um, it really impacted on me as a child. And I can remember visiting them so, so clearly. I mean, I spent a lot of time there, you know. I remember like um, the peak fires and all of this stuff. It, it would have to be, it would have to be a children's book. I mean, I. As I was reading it the other day, I did a reading and I was thinking, you know, you could tell the anti stories. It would be quite, this would be quite a good adult's book. You could like do it from a different perspective. So, but the Cuckoo Summer, yes, um, I think it had to be a children's book. Well, we're very glad that it is. And I'm Thank hoping you. that it will be read in many classrooms. I'm sure it will. Thank you for joining me today. I've really learned so much uh, about the background to this story and it's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I hope it's of some use to people. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.